Good afternoon. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, Mike was confused looking at the PowerPoint slides because there is not a PowerPoint slide for the lesson this afternoon. Um, but this is going to be uh, just a, a more brief uh, section, even though it's a longer section of text. Um, I'm going to try to just touch on some of the things said in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 20, um, to just see how the writer of the Hebrew letter was urging the audience to press toward maturity and to see the necessity of maturity. Just some quick overview things in Hebrews before we get back to chapter 5. In chapter 13, verse 22, uh, he urges the readers to bear with this word of exhortation. And we've talked about how sometimes you have like an anchoring point in epistles where there will be like a word or a phrase to, you know, that the author will give to summarize the purpose of the entire writing. First uh, Peter 5, verse 12, for instance, uh, Peter exhorts the reader to see that he's been testifying to the true grace of God. And he just kind of gives light that the letter, although the word grace isn't used every verse or every paragraph, that the whole letter has been really trying to teach about what the true grace of God looks like, giving a vivid depiction of that. John, at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20 and 21, will say that the, the, the amount of things that could be written about Jesus' works, if they were written one by one, the world would be filled with volumes of writings. But the things in John's Gospel, the signs that are recorded, were written specifically that they, the, the reader would believe in Jesus' name and in believing have life in his name, right? So you have these, these phrases or these statements um, that give light to greater purpose. And Hebrews 13, verse 22, is that verse for the Hebrew letter. That the letter at large is an exhortation, which means to try to stir up to action, to call to action, or even to call to one side. And we've looked at up to chapter 5 so far, that the Hebrew writer is calling the audience to the side first of Jesus. So in chapters 1 through 5, what he's been doing is trying to portray the glory of, in chapter 1, who Jesus always has been, and in chapter 2, who Jesus is now, and in chapter 3 and 4, trying to vividly portray the importance of Jesus being all these glorious things that um, transcend his earthly existence, but that he came into earthly existence to be equipped for a very special and unique purpose to serve as our high priest, offering both gifts and sacrifices sympathetically on behalf of our relationship with God, right? So with that, chapter 10, 32. Um, the current condition of the Hebrew uh, audience is important to note. Um, getting into the section we'll be reading particularly. Um, he mentions in chapter 10, verse 32, that this was a group of brethren who had done some extremely encouraging things in their past. Um, he mentions that after being enlightened, which seems to indicate their obedience to the gospel, they endured a great conflict of suffering. They were made a public spectacle with reproaches and tribulations. They were sharers with those who were so treated if they weren't themselves experiencing that. Verse 34, they showed sympathy toward prisoners and even accepted the seizure of their property, looking to the lasting possession that they had. Um, but he mentioned in verse 36 through 39 that they need endurance. What we're going to see in chapter 5, verse 11, as you turn back there, this was an audience who in their past had been very encouraging, very passionate, very zealous, 
And they were, they were suffering in an ongoing way that was causing them to begin to drift and pull back. So we, we've seen sprinkles of warnings in the midst of the encouragement so far. But chapter 5, verse 11 is where the, the writer gets much more direct. Before we read, what happens when a child in infancy is growing up normally, everything's going well, and then all of a sudden development stops? like completely stops. And I don't just mean initially. I mean like development stops and, you know, you just kind of at first, you know, trying to see, okay, is, is this just, you know, something that the child's going to grow out of? Is this just going to pass? And then time keeps going on and not only has development stopped, things begin getting worse. What do you do? At that point, any responsible parent is going to hit the, hit the sirens, the emergency button, right? You're going to take, take the, the child to the doctors, get examinations. You're going to try to focus yourself on stopping everything you're doing and addressing this need. And what we're going to see in chapter 5 is this is where the Hebrew Christians, the audience, had, had, uh, had gotten. Um, at a place where they were developing at one point, but at the point of this writing, they had stopped. And the letter is meant to address that in an emergency kind of situation. So... Chapter 5, verse 11, the title of this section, I'm just titling it generally Pressing Toward Maturity. And this, this first section, chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, is looking at the necessity of maturity, the necessity of maturity. Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So in verse 10, uh, right before he says concerning him, you know, verse 10 he ended talking about how Jesus has been designated as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You look at chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, is where he finishes this brief interlude of exhortation. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So he's going to come back to the point he's making about Melchizedek. But I think one thing we can gather just from this interruption, this point that he's trying to make, the connection that he's trying to make between Melchizedek and Jesus, I think what this tells us is there, there, there's a purpose to this connection that's not just meant to be a neat Bible fact. It's not just meant to be, you know, very enlightening that the Bible has these like deeply woven connections that span from Genesis to Jesus and these neat things that, you know, can be very encouraging and joy bringing to see. But I think his point is this is supposed to be producing something much more important than that. And unless somebody is engaged in the appropriate way and their heart is set in the right condition, this is not going to have the kind of impact that the writer is intending. So he stops to confront them very directly. Have you ever heard somebody speaking and like you were pretty sure they were talking about some kind of relevant issue and something related to you, but they weren't quite using language personal or clear enough for you to actually say like, oh, wow, he is talking about me. So you're just kind of left in this gray area. You're like, so who is he talking about? Like, are we in trouble? Or is this like, is this for somebody else? That's not how the Bible is written, Right. How would you feel if in verse 11, if somebody were to, you know, knowing this group, knowing maybe something that we're not aware of, 
they come and we know this person, they say, you know what, you have this problem. Why would they do that? I think it's like chapter 12 where he mentions that those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And that's, that's again, it's confirmed in uh, Revelation chapter 3 at the church in Laodicea. This writer clearly loved these Christians, right? And because of his love for these Christians, he saw the situation kind of like a parent with a child who's been developing and all of a sudden the development has stopped. Now it's getting worse. A child, if they love their parent, isn't just going to say, well, oh well, you know, I guess we'll try again. We can have another kid, right? No, the, the parent out of love for the child is going to address the problem. So the Hebrew writer isn't going to, you know, just go on with the point if he's not confident that they're not going to be able to receive it in their current condition. So the writer is willing to uncomfortably expose a problem with the Christians here that is hindering their ability to continue to mature and to develop. Verse 12 through the end, he makes the point centrally, obviously, that they need to be teachers by this point. I think that the point of being teachers is in verse 14, having a practice, a trained practice of how to use the word of righteousness. Um, He's going to get into chapter 6 in verse 7, uh, ground that just receives rain progressively. Um, And I think the idea that we'll get into in that in just a minute isn't necessarily some fast change that all of a sudden just in a moment somebody is radically different, while that may happen sometimes. Um, You may remember in 1 Kings 19, this was some time ago with uh, Elijah and Elisha, made the point that when God appeared to Elijah, uh, at Mount Horeb, you know, there was that, uh, the fire and the earthquake and, and, and the rain and the quaking and Elijah was terrified of those things, but ultimately God appeared to him and spoke to him through this gentle whisper and he went back to Israel to continue to suffer as a prophet in the nation. Um, and we made the point back then that convictions built on patience ultimately have more value than convictions that are only built by circumstances. So circumstances, I might be pushed to like make some changes or feel very passionate about certain things because of maybe things in my life are more pushing me toward that conviction. But what happens when those circumstances go away, right? What happens when I have to make the choice by faith, the discipline choice, to know who God is in a way that leads me to self-sacrificially choose to serve him even when my inner passions or my outward circumstances aren't already pushing me in that direction, right? And I think the, the process of maturity in verse 14 leads someone to not just think, I want to make choices just based on what's morally wrong and morally right. The idea of the word of righteousness that leads to maturity is understanding what is pleasing to God. Like understanding who Jesus is, where I'm progressively able to make choices, where I'm able in my mind to understand this is really the kind of choice that I can see Jesus making in this situation. This is the kind of choice that I can see Jesus making in this relationship. This is the kind of language I can see Jesus using here, right? So it's more of leading to the point of knowing that this is leading me closer to Jesus. This is something that's going to be more pleasing to God than an otherwise uh, decision. So in the situation that these brethren were in, he knew that they were in this condition because these were brethren who have seemingly been Christians for a long time. And not only have they not been making progress, but they've been drifting backwards instead of forwards. So verses uh, 1 through uh, 12 of the next, next section. 
Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to, to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Just one thing really quick before getting into things specifically. One of the things that I think is important about just reading the Bible um, and not just like reading the Bible topically or I'm looking for passages that relate to where I'm at right now to help me with where I'm at, but just like soaking in God's word is the balance. When you notice in verse in chapter 5, verses 11 through uh, 14, it's being very direct, saying some very difficult things. Chapter 6, he mentions some difficult things again about, you know, if somebody falls away after having tasted the goodness of all of these great things that God provides, you know, and if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance because they crucified themselves the Son of God. But in verse 9 through, through 12, there's this balance of, of grace and mercy being extended to the audience. Because um, I think it's interesting in chapter 5, verse 12, he seems to be inferring that the condition they're putting themselves in, they need milk again and not solid food. And the inference seems to be that this, this point that he wants to make about Melchizedek is more um, mature meat type things, right? So he tells them that they're in a position where it seems like they need milk all over again. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, he mentions some of these things. But instead of actually giving them those things, in the confidence, I think, of verses 9 through 12, he gets right back into Melchizedek in chapter 7. So I think that the hope is that by exhorting them, they'll return back to the frame of mind that they ought to be in to align themselves with their history and stop drifting away. So particularly verses uh, 4 through 8, particularly verses uh, 4 through 8, um, what I've experienced um, when I've dealt with trying to talk to people um, just about where they seem to be at if they're drifting. Um, usually I find that people don't seem to understand the consequences of choices they're making as they're in the process of drifting but have not completely fallen away. Um, I've been there myself. Um, I can look back on my life. Um, I've mentioned before that when I was about 20, I had to repent of, of living in sin. And along the way, there was just kind of this slow process of drifting. And something that would have been very helpful is if somebody would have just said, Bryant, you know, I don't know what's going on, but there's some pretty clear signs that whatever's going on in your faith, 
is not good. And we have to address the situation. We've got to get this right, right? And so, again, I think the Hebrew writer is acknowledging where they are and trying to give them clarity about the consequences of where they're going and people who put themselves in that position while at the same time graciously extending confidence to them and assurance. You know what? I'm confident that you're better than this. So in verse 4 through 6, I think the idea of those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, they've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. If the message of the gospel and the appeal that the gospel makes to the heart, if that's not enough, then what else is there, right? You know, the gospel wasn't just God's first attempt to reach the world and to reach the hearts of men, right? You've got thousands of years of history, miracles, prophets, kings, You have nations rising against nations. All of these incredible things that God was doing to reach the hearts of men. The gospel was not God's first effort. It was his final effort. And if the gospel's not enough, if the character of the cross and what's seen of God in the cross and all that's given through the cross, all of the hope that's given through the resurrection, if that's not enough, God is not going to deny himself, right? And that's essential for us to understand with verses uh, 13 through 20. God's faithfulness puts us in the position where we have to realize where we are so that we can appropriately value what God is giving so that we do not drift away. Because it is essential that we understand God will never deny himself. So if the character of God is not enough, if the priesthood of Christ is not drawing enough, if it's not humbling enough, then there's nothing that can bring me to repentance in the appropriate way. Um, And I think verse 6 is meant to be especially startling. They again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Have you thought about that? That those who fall away, it's as if they are publicly putting Christ back on display in a crucified position. Um, That's something I haven't thought about enough. And I think if I thought about that more personally, it would help me to have a more vivid motivation um, to continue to press on to maturity. So verse 7 and 8, the little parable-like segment here. The idea is if ground takes water from, uh, from the sky and produces some kind of fruit or vegetation, then it's fulfilling its purpose. But I mean, if if ground is receiving water and nourishment and it's producing nothing, then it's not fulfilling its purpose at all for giving life, right? And I think it's, it's meant to be um, like a parable uh, statement to get them to reflect on the condition of their heart. It seems like in verses 11 through 14 of the last chapter that these are Christians who've been hearing God's word regularly. So it's not like they've completely disassociated from with, with one another. It's not like they've completely fallen away yet. They're just noticeably in the process of drifting. They're not growing anymore. They're not making progress. Things are kind of moving further and further back. The idea is they're hearing God's word regularly and there's no evidence of maturity coming from it. And so I think this section is where we need to be self-reflective. Is God's, is the continual hearing of God's word producing an ongoing evidence of maturity in your life? Um, because I think it's easy, again, with, with assembling Sundays and Wednesdays, and you get used to the character and the form of God's word, the humility of God's appeal, and you just begin to get less and less stirred by the things that you hear, right? 
He's urging the audience to see that if our hearts are not going to produce what God is seeking, that God is just in cursing that ground, right? So with fear, with awe, with respect and love for God, the writer is trying to urge the audience to turn their hearts back into the right position. Um, In verses 9 through verse 12, again, reassuring them that he's convinced that clearly they have the capability of being diligent. And verses 11 and 12, he's going to write this next section to begin to strive to inspire that diligence again. Verse 13 through 20. This is the assurance that leads us to maturity. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God's faithfulness, verses 13 through 20, I think really is the center exhortation of why he's bringing up uh, the order of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Melchizedek. Um, go back to chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, um, just to kind of show this, this thread uh, from the beginning. He quotes uh, one of the Psalms here and he mentions uh, in relation to uh, the heavens and earthly existence, like a mantle you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Look at chapter 2, verse 17, both mentioning uh, Jesus' priesthood, but also his faithfulness. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And then in chapter 4, Uh, verse 15, when it mentions that he was tempted in all things, he remained faithful. He never changed his purpose. He never changed his character. He remained faithful through all the sufferings that he endured and all the temptations that he endured. So chapter 16, verse 13 through 20 is again encouraging the reader to see that the key to overcoming attitudes of withdrawal and suffering is understanding the glory of God's faithfulness. Now, he references in verse 14 a promise made to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. And it's interesting in verse 17, who was that oath ultimately for? So when God swore by himself, when he said, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you, who was God ultimately speaking to when that was said? Notice in verse 17, God was desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. That's you and me. And so God, back in the book of Genesis, 
was anticipating wanting to show the glory of his unchangeable purpose through time, like we were looking at in the, even this morning with um, time frames like Samaria and the siege that they were enduring, that we could look back and see that God never yielded his purpose. Even in the face of opposition, reasons that he had to give up on his people when they were at a place in his covenant, we had every right to cut them off that to see God still remain faithful, not just to the base covenantal promises, but faithful even to his grace in seeking ways to bless and help them beyond what was explicitly outlined in the covenant. Those things are meant in verse 18 to give us strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And that's meant to give us an anchor that when everything else fails, we can know with absolute certainty that God has remained faithful. To drift back from God in suffering, to compromise my faith, to compromise my relationship with brethren, which um, he'll get into more as the letter progresses, is an evidence that I do not trust God's faithfulness. That I don't trust that God can use my circumstances for his glory, that God has the best way leading to deliverance and restoration and healing. I don't believe that God's love is consistent enough for me to rely on, to trust his provisions for me. I don't trust or see that God is continuing his work of refining me, of, of helping me to be more conformed to his nature, of trying to show me the glory of the salvation I've received and the glory of Christ. What I'm saying when I withdraw from God through suffering is those things are not strong or substantial enough to hold me in my position. And that's not to say that we won't struggle in suffering, right? That's not to say that we have to respond perfectly to suffering, but that the, the, the audience of this epistle, that the evidence of their need to hear such things was seen in the fact that they were clearly pulling away from their relationship with God and with one another. And again, this was a time when, just like a child um, losing its development early on, the writer is trying to urge um, the readers to see the emergency of their situation. So God's faithfulness is an anchor for our souls. And in verse 20, the whole reason why the, the order of Melchizedek, this priesthood, why that's so important is because that gives necessary light to principles and applications of God's faithfulness that only more fully will anchor us down in tribulation, distress, and suffering. Uh, just like we looked at this morning, uh, that first point in the application of the lesson, being patient in tribulation coming from perspective. The order of Melchizedek and Jesus inheriting that high priesthood is meant to give the reader perspective. Perspective that anchors the soul. So we'll look into that, uh, Lord willing, the next time we continue in Hebrews. We'll, we'll stop the lesson there. Um, but the exhortation is that God's faithfulness leads us nearer to him. Uh, God's faithfulness leads us to apply his character, apply his commandments with joy, even when on the surface it seems like we are suffering loss in our obedience and allegiance to God. It's the assurance, not of the present, it's the assurance of the hope that is to come that leads us in the moment to make choices that lead us to the future. Um, so if there's anything that we can do for you, any help that we can give, uh, now would be the time as we stand and sing the invitation song.